welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I'm joined again by my good friend John Presnell for a conversation about The Conversation. This is our fifth Francis Ford Coppola conversation, and it is the middle of our trilogy of conversations on how did liberalism and democracy and surveillance and publicizing our private lives, how did it all come to pass and what is happening to us? in the digital era we're living in now, we should look back a little to Michelangelo Antonioni, our previous subject, blow up. What does it mean to put all of life on camera, to shoot it, capture it, and publicize it, make everything public, visible, beautified? And today we're talking about Francis Ford Coppola's The Conversation, where it's about recording audio, not video. It's about sounds, not about sights, and not beautified images, but the ugly truth we all suspect somebody somewhere is saying. (laughs) Great to be here, Titus, and uh, great to be talking about, I think, our fifth film by Coppola, this time The Conversation. This was a very successful film for Coppola, but not as successful as The Godfather 2, which came out the same year as this one. But it was nominated for all the awards, uh, starring Gene Hackman. A deeper character study, or, or fuller character study here than we see him blow up. Harry Call uh, is our sound surveillance guy. And he's going to record a conversation that will have implications on his own private life. So I'm glad to be here to talk about this movie. It was a pleasure watching it with you, talking through this, thinking about what's going on here really. What did these guys, Antonioni, Coppola, and as we draw this to a close, we'll get to Brian De Palma. What did they see happening and what did they see coming? As Blow Up is related to our own celebrity era and Instagram and all that stuff, so also the conversation is connected to two other facts of our new digital world. Social media, one, where Mm -hmm. gossip is endless, and the other one is, of course, surveillance, which, of course, Facebook or whatever else uh, kind of corporation in technology is fully involved in. Everybody Mm -hmm. is being surveilled for the benefit of the government or for the benefit of commerce, corporations, Mm -hmm. or for somebody's benefit, and most of us don't know what's happening and to whom is it happening. It's just that we suspect to everybody. It's happening to everybody. And this is, of course, a very big deal in the conversation. We start here with a scene in the crowd in a park in San Francisco. And it just looks like a lot of people in a crowd. All of them anonymous, we would think. Individuals, surely, but anonymous. These are the constituents of privacy. Then it turns out we're following some of them around. Mm -hmm. You can pick people out of a crowd all of a sudden. The crowd is Mm -hmm. not going to keep you safe. Democracy doesn't defend each and every member of democracy. (laughs) And then it turns out that one of them is actually following them around. We pick them out because he has picked them out. We have a protagonist, Gene Hackman, Harry Cole, and he's this ingenious but deeply shameless guy who is forever violating the privacy and the secrecy of other people's conversations. That's right. There's no equivalent for a peeping Tom. (laughs) I guess he's an eavesdropper. And he has turned this into an art. And the art into a science. And the science into the future of all of America. (laughs) It's not just that he does jobs, whether for government agencies or for private corporations or for private users who have the money, the skill, and the shamelessness to hire somebody as shameless as him to spy on people. 
mm-hmm. but but you know we see a convention where harry shows that he's on top of the world he's the best ever in mm-hmm. the confrontation between the greatest surveillance man he shows to be the greatest <laughs> and at the same time all this espionage and dirty stuff is out in the open in america there's a convention where That's people right. sell the future technology by which we will all be surveilled they're shamelessly public about how they will be violating all our privacies so <laughs> so this is an amazing thing happening in a very quiet story a long movie very drab everything is dirty that was beautiful in blow up everything yeah. is miserable and sad as opposed to all the giddy swinging 60s that we saw in blow up it's like light and darkness everything That's right. that was brilliant there is miserable or dark here everything that was obvious there is obscure here mm-hmm. from transparency to opacity we go and this is how coppola complements antonioni and together they recreate the movies because you have both sights and sounds that's right yeah <laughs> which we'll see I guess when we get to blow out in the next one I attempt to sync the two but in this one we find out that spontaneous conversations between friends seemingly in private you know even in a public space two people can separate off themselves and hold a conversation and yet nonetheless they're vulnerable to the latest technological devices that Harry himself through his tinkering and through his kind of engineering has perfected to be able to in this noisy lunch space right there in Union Square downtown San Francisco there's a drumming band playing and there's all kinds of passers by but through very complicated techniques he's able to focus in and single out these two characters played by Frederick Forrest and Cindy Williams and they're having a conversation and Harry Call is using his ability to get what he says a big fat recording and he's proud of his ability through these various techniques having people standing away with powerful microphones off in the distance having another guy pretend to be walking through the Park, but secretly holding a microphone and through these various different angles is able to capture the entire conversation regardless of what it's about he's going to get this recording for the person who's hired him people want to find out what others are saying about them behind their backs and now we have the means to figure that out and if that means invading a privacy harry has no problem doing it like you said he's shameless and in fact he's proud of his shamelessness and we have a convention here with all of these shameless people showing look how great we are of invading others privacy and privacy becomes a big theme in this movie just like the you know vaunted right to privacy comes to be a big area in american political discourse and in supreme court decisions and worry about protecting privacy privacy in the bedroom and so on here we see regardless of such legal decisions that one's privacy can be easily intruded upon by somebody like call who has no shame in this regard and has the technological know how to do it yep you point out very well and we both come from political science so we could say that blow up is a first amendment movie it's about yeah. our revolution in our right to express ourselves the conversation is a fourth amendment movie yeah. it's about our protection against illegal searches and seizures and so you can see how in the bill of rights is in the constitution in liberal politics understood in the broadest sense going back to the founding and to John Locke and so forth mm-hmm. our individuality what makes us human and how we understand that publicly and politically and artistically in the movies we can see that all of these issues play out there and that's why the initial scene in this movie just like in blow up is so very important it shows you 
is this a democracy here? There's a bunch of people in Union Square. It's Union Square. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's more yeah. American than that? That's Union right. Union Station, Union Square, throughout America, it's the Union. <laughs> but these guys are actually hiding in a crowd. There are two individuals mm-hmm. who, it turns out, have a conversation to carry out in secret. What is secret in America? In public, because nobody looks at what's public. Nobody pays attention to the obvious. That's actually true. I mean, we know that all the time. If you stop and see what's happening around you, you'd go, wow, really? Is this what we're doing now? (laughs) I can't believe it. (laughs) But nobody pays attention. And so they know that they're hiding. But if you're hiding in the crowd, then you're not really part of the crowd. If democracy Mm -hmm. is a cover-up for you, then you're not part of democracy. That's right. (laughs) And from the beginning, these characters who are sort of in American democracy, but sort of not of it. Harry Cole, on the one hand, the guy who not only can hide in a crowd, but pick people out of a crowd. And these other two characters who are having a conversation about their love affair and their fear that adultery will be found out and punished Mm -hmm. by the woman's husband. That's, again, a hilarious, hilarious thing. And Coppola's script Mm -hmm. is full of these things that are supposed to make you wonder, what's the difference between the shameful and the shameless? Mm-hmm. These people are doing something shameful. They're adulterers. But mm-hmm. on the other hand, you could say that that's free expression. Yeah. They're in love with each other. Eh, who knows? We don't punish adultery in our world. So mm-hmm. that's what they're doing. They're doing their own thing. And they hide it in public. Talking about the most shameful thing they do shamelessly in public. And mm-hmm. on the other hand, Gene Hackman does something very shameful as well. Spying out their privacy, their dirty secrets, mm-hmm. their immoralities or imperfections. And he's shameless about that too. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, brings up a very important question for art. Is there any art that isn't shameless about the shameful, like these characters in the story? Mm-hmm. If it's just a nice story about nice people doing nice things, what's the interest? There's got to be drama. There's got to be conflict. That's right. That's what attracts us. If there's nothing happening, then what's the point? The point does seem to be that we're always in crisis with regard to the shameful, which constitutes our privacy. We have secrets. We have things, all of us, that we are ashamed to do or say publicly. We wouldn't want those things shared. We wouldn't want to be victims of surveillance because we Mm -hmm. would cease to be individuals. We would cease to be the private creatures we think we are. So Mm -hmm. what's involved in liberalism or in the Bill of Rights or in our understanding of constitutional jurisprudence is actually very immediate, urgent for all of us. Can you really be an individual? Can you really be the private person you think you are? Your secrets are, in some ways, who you are. Mm -hmm. In a way, I guess, you know, Harry Call, he would answer this by saying, well, he himself is just pursuing his personal ambitions. This is some kind of know-how he has, and he's making a living out of it. And so he has a right to do this. And I think his excuse also for that shamelessness argument would be, you know, he has his assistants and they're sitting in a van listening to this conversation. And one of them says, this is the stupidest conversation I've ever heard, right? This is completely meaningless. And of course, the snippets that we hear of it, it is a meandering conversation, doesn't go anywhere. It jumps around. We do get the sense that they're having an affair. And that, of course, is shameful. But otherwise, there's not much going on here. And Harry says, well, I don't care about the content of the conversation. I don't care about the lived experiences of these people, right? This is going to be captured 
it on tape. Then then whatever it is who's hired me to use this tape, well, that's his business, not my business. I'm not intruding. I'm just using this technology to capture it, much like the character in Blow Up uses his technology just to capture a couple in a park on photographs. There's a paradox and a self-deception here on his part that somehow he thinks he can do this without being involved in the very things that he's recording in. We learn that Harry tries to hermetically seal himself from pretty much any kind of outside intrusion. He has associates, but they don't know much about him. He seems to have no friends. We learn later on he has a girlfriend, but this girlfriend, he just pops in and out of her life whenever he wants to, and she knows absolutely nothing about him. And he drops her when he suspects she starts to know things about him. He has his apartment, has a triple locked door on it. He thinks that he's not doing anything wrong. He's just pursuing his career. He's advancing technology. He's making a living. He has a right to do that. And all he's doing is gathering recordings. That recording is an image of the lived experience in terms of a conversation, but it's not intruding it actually in on that experience. He just wants the fat recording and wants nothing to do with what they're speaking about. And I think this is his way of trying to tell himself that somehow he's not doing anything shameful here and try to give himself a rationalization or an alibi of some sort, morally speaking. Yep. You put this perfectly. His caught in this contradiction, what he does to other people by way of business, he would never want anybody doing to himself. And the more he does it to others, the more he's paranoid that somebody might be surveilling him. The Mm -hmm. more he intrudes into other people's privacy, the more he becomes obsessive about protecting his own privacy. And with him, it's almost literally true what he might say of others that, you know, I don't care about their lives. There's nothing there. There is nothing to his life. There's nobody in his life and there's nothing to it but the mostly empty drab apartment. The more he becomes obsessive about protecting his privacy, the more you wonder, what has he actually got to hide? What could he be private about? There's nothing. Mm-hmm. In a strange way, he is getting closer and closer to being merely a technological operator. Mm-hmm. He's a guy who yeah. runs a piece of technology and who devises these pieces of technology. He's a very intelligent, ingenious inventor who solves problems when it comes to violating people's privacy. (laughs) So privacy is the problem from his professional point of view, and he's got a talent for solving that problem by violating (laughs) privacy. But in his own case, he wants to protect that. And as you said, he's paranoid about locking his house, about nobody knowing anything about him. He has an existential crisis, not because he's going through midlife crisis, but because people know it's his birthday without him having told them. That shocks him, and it means, oh my God, these people know something about me. Uh Uh-oh, and he wants to fix that. He lies to his girlfriend about his age. Yes, he does. His dealings with others, too, is just incredibly stiff and formal and mechanical. He lacks a certain degree of spontaneity because he's constantly aware of how others are looking at him and wanting to hold on to that privacy as he gets more and more paranoid. And that But that privacy becomes smaller and smaller and smaller in terms of a dot in his apartment. The only thing we ever see him do spontaneously is once he's finally in his apartment, all the doors are locked. You know, he can strip down to his underwear, stick on a jazz record and kind of improvise playing saxophone along with the live jazz record. I don't know what the recording is, but he's playing along to a live recording. And then, interestingly, then there's a pause in the song where you hear a brief applause to the audience. And of course, he himself pauses for that kind of applause on a recorded device. But outside of this, 
not only does he not have any friends, but he does everything possible to make sure that he won't have any friends or any acquaintance that knows anything about his own personal life. He lives it all in his head and he walks around in this translucent raincoat. You know, you can see something through it, but it's all very, very vague and nobody's going to know anything about him. And he likes it that way. Nobody's going to know anything about him except for his capacity at surveillance. When it comes to the convention of all the surveillance guys, you know, like you said, it turns out he's the best and he wants to be known as the best and he's flattered. His vanity comes into play here, his pride and his ability. His reputation is important in terms of being able to master this technology and be the person that people want to hire if they find him useful to learn about, uh, invade other people's privacy. He is a peculiar character here, and as he just becomes more and more internal in on himself. Perhaps you might argue the only person maybe he attempts to speak truthfully to is God via confessor. You know, we do learn that he is a devout Catholic, and we do have a scene where he goes to confession. Through the screen, of course, we see the profile of the priest, but the priest is merely an intercessor between him and God. That's the only place that he feels that he is apart from playing jazz spontaneously along to a record, is in the confessional booth. Yep, that's a very good point. Confession and jazz or music are the only times when he lets something come out of himself that other people become privy to. Mm -hmm. This is the only time when he will share anything. Mm -hmm. And the less he has, the greedier he gets, or the more protective or the more grasping. And that seems to define him. And you can think, broadly speaking, of being relational or our being together with other human beings as a matter of love and friendship. And in this movie, love is about women and friendship is about men. Mm -hmm. And you can understand a lot about Gene Hackman if you look at how he deals with the women or the love Mm -hmm. issue in the movie. His downfall comes from the fact that he thinks this woman he caught on the recording must be innocent. She's in love, adulterously admittedly, but she's in love and she's a woman, so that must mean innocence. Mm -hmm. That is his specific prejudice. He thinks women are simpletons and everything that comes bad to him in the movie comes from the fact that women are actually conniving, intriguing characters. (laughs) Woman is evil in this movie. It's a shocking thing to do, but it's not just that woman on the recording. He abandons his girlfriend when it turns out that she knows he's stalking her. She says, I know when you come in, you have this certain way of opening the door. And I know Mm -hmm. you spend hours looking at me from this place up there. She's kind of okay with being on display, so to speak, with him violating her privacy, but she knows about it. Mm -hmm. And it's not that she's indignant or that she throws him out. It's that he cannot deal with the fact that a woman is so intelligent, that she's not a simple object of his affection. Mm -hmm. She's smart enough to see him seeing her where he thought she was just dumb enough just to be seen. Exactly. He's been called out. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That means she could get to know him. That scares him, and so he abandons her. Another Mm -hmm. woman seduces him and then steals his recordings, this recording of the conversation. And why Mm -hmm. did that happen? Because he thought she was a simpleton as well. Mm -hmm. He never saw the honeypot coming because he looks down on women. Then he looks down on them because he wants safety. Mm -hmm. Let there be one place where there's no danger. There's no danger from women because they couldn't be intriguing or gossiping or conniving. Mm -hmm. They couldn't be hiding ugliness behind their beauty. Mm -hmm. 
if they're simple they're safe and there's some place you can get rest or trust and with all these women characters in the movie whenever he comes to that opinion he acts on it and he is undone by it that's his relationship to women mm -hmm. His relationship to men is more complicated because there you have competition. His relationship mm -hmm. to men is of two kinds. There are people who are in his line of business and then there are people who are clients of his business. Mm -hmm. There's his assistant played by the late great John Cazali mm -hmm. and this guy wants to leave because Harry never lets him in on the action. He never teaches him how to become what would ultimately be a competitor rather than a servant. Mm -hmm. So Gene Hackman wants to be trusting of this guy, and in order to do that, the guy has to be an object, an instrument, an automaton, a piece of technology. To yes. Do what he's told and to shut up, not to ask questions, not to try to learn. Then it mm -hmm. will become too much competition. The fact that friendship involves not just cooperation but competition unnerves Gene Hackman. He can't deal with that fact either, and so he almost loses his assistant. Then there's this other guy whom he meets at the convention mm -hmm. where all of these all-American guys, gadgeteers, inventors, <laughs> entrepreneurs, salesmen, conmen, all these all-American characters meet to talk shamelessly about the shameless things they do to other people. Mm -hmm. They're introducing the surveillance society and they're all proud of it. It's an achievement. It's the latest yes. and greatest in tech. You can now surveil people in so many different ways. You can violate their privacy and get what you want out of them. There's talk about the Big Three scandal, about these car corporations in Detroit who want to spy on each other to figure out through industrial espionage what the other guy is doing to maybe mm -hmm. preempt it so that they can get an advantage. They want to win. They want what's good in life, and they're not going to be stopped by law or justice or morality because that's silly. Right. <laughs> and there's political overtones. You know, the government hires these people to do jobs. Gene Hackman has done that. So you mm -hmm. work for hire to important people, whether it's the government or corporations. These are the powerful people in America. They run the government. They run the corporations. They are rich. They are oligarchs. They are aristocrats. However you want to think of them, they're the few, the proud, unlike the many, the crowd. Mm -hmm. That's who Harry works for. And then in some strange way, there's a mix because you could turn surveillance, the dirty work he does, into clean work, into American corporate commerce, like his competitor wants to do. Here mm -hmm. he meets a man who is as proud as himself, as competitive, as driven by success, and looking for honor rather than love from his peers. Who can judge who's the best at surveillance? Only other people who are really, really good at it. This guy and Gene Hackman, they have a competition over this stuff because they're on top of the world. But there can be only one on top because this is America. Capitalism mm -hmm. and corporations must lead to monopoly. There can only mm -hmm. be one on top, just like we can have only one Amazon or only one Google or only one Facebook. And of course, they're all busy doing surveillance on us all the time, just yeah. like in the movie. Yeah. So these guys there, you see a strange thing. Harry is a genius and an inventor of technology, but he takes it very personally and privately. He's all about secrets. That's, of mm -hmm. course, part of our technological life. Not even Coca-Cola will give the secret recipe to right. their Coca-Cola. You know, everybody mm -hmm. drinks it, but nobody knows what it is. And that seems to be what's happening in our modern lives. 
the things that are everyday uses are also corporate secrets at the same time. And we never noticed this obvious double character of technology. And that's what Harry is best at, secrecy, keeping his own secrets even from his assistant, even from the woman who might love him, from everybody really. He's all mm -hmm. about keeping his own secrets or violating everybody else's secrets. The other guy shows the other side of technology. You gotta mass produce it. You gotta market it. You gotta make it That's seem right. happy and okay. You gotta make it seem on the up and up. You can't have this secretive attitude because people will look at you as though you're suspicious if you're acting so suspicious. Yeah, that's right. You have to market it. You know, at the convention, the guy Moran, Moran played by the actor Alan Garfield, who really was a great character actor, he wants to demonstrate this device. Unlike Harry, Moran has a booth at the convention. He's selling his wares. And he has this device that you can stick on the phone and you blow a, a little a mouth harp into the phone and then you can surveil on somebody else's line. And so he says, I'm going to demonstrate this with my wife, reflecting a little bit the actual conversation at the beginning that we've seen recorded here. Because he does it and then he hangs up the phone and we all get to listen to his wife having an affair with another man. And of course, this is all done for big laughs. Ah, oh, ha, ha, ha. But wouldn't everybody want to know if their wife was cheating on them, I suppose, is the argument here. And yet this does have the joke in this instance, which can be sold to everyone, we see actually playing out in the original recording. In both cases, there is this assumption that something is going on that needs to be recorded, that's going on behind your back, a conversation that you need to know about. You know, Moran tries to turn to Harry and say, hey, this is a big opportunity here, right? Take my kind of business know-how and we'll take your technological know-how and we'll be the company. Moran says, you're the greatest on the West Coast, I'm the greatest on the East Coast. Of course, we don't really believe that. We all know that Harry was originally on the East Coast where he was the greatest. And events there that ended tragically or poorly for Harry forces him to go out West where he now becomes the best on the West Coast. But Harry will reject all of that. He's proud in his own ability and that reputation alone will keep him in business. But it also makes sure that he's not going to have anybody in on his secrets. He's not going to be surveilled. His girlfriend spotted him surveilling her, and that ended that relationship. He doesn't want to be seen by anybody else listening into what other people are doing. And of course, this will be part of the overturning in the ending when we find out that Harry has kind of been under surveillance perhaps for a lot longer than we realize. Yes, mm -hmm. there's this one opportunity at the conference for Harry Call. You get it? It's about calling yeah. uh, the, the Gene Hackman character. He has this one chance to get in business with somebody who embodies both himself, a sort of genius surveillance guy, but also embodies his clients, the guys he works for, because he's got his own corporation going and he wants to make it big. It's mm -hmm. not enough to be East Coast or West Coast. It's got to be all American. You got to mm -hmm. be on top of the whole of America. That's when you know you've won. And he rejects this idea of corporate success, so it's not going to be the next Silicon Valley thing, because mm -hmm. he wants more than anything else privacy. He understands that what he is doing, recording an actual affair, and what this other guy is doing, mimicking an affair for comic effect, mm -hmm. they're both the same and they're different. They're the same in the technology they use, but they're different in the purpose to which they put it. Gene Hackman is obsessive about protecting his own privacy. You can't do that if you become a corporate CEO. Then nope. you become the object of other people's industrial espionage. 
That's right. Mm-hmm. If you want to stay private, if you're that obsessive about saying that the best American is the guy who keeps his secrets best, and he's the best American because he can violate the secrets of the rich corporate types as well. Mm-hmm. Sure, he works for the government or for corporations or for whoever, but he's not their servant because they he can't can violate get at their secrets and they can't get at him. That's mm-hmm. what makes him a tragic hero. That's mm-hmm. what shows his great ambition. His inability to be gotten at, to be found out, or his attempt to try to make that the case, you know, just empties his own personal life of anything you might call a life. It's that kind of emptiness then that deceives him when he actually begins to listen to the content of the conversation. Because we hear this conversation between Cindy Williams and Frederick Forrest, and they're having this affair that they want to keep secret from her husband. And it becomes apparent that it's the husband who's hired Gene Hackman to hear this out. So we, the audience, are just thinking, well, this is a cuckolded husband who wants to find out what his wife's doing. But Frederick Forrest makes the remark that takes a great deal of technological ingenuity on Harry Call ability to figure out what he says, but it amounts to he'd kill us if he had the chance. And so here we see on the one hand, yes, they're doing something shameful, but she's in love. And then now we see that they, at least from Harry's point of view, they're potential victims. And his misjudgment, especially with regard to women, as you mentioned, is connected to his In his own life, he has no experience or he will close the door to any possible experience from which he might learn that life's a lot more complicated than this. And people who appear to be victims might actually turn out to be the criminals and that there's a lot more going on here. And yet his demand for his privacy to listen to others without ever being able to be listened into is going to put him in a situation that he is incapable of figuring out even why he's doing what he's doing. And it undermines his ability to try to figure out, you know, when he realizes he wants to, or think he wants to save people, he can't do it. We learned the reason why he went from the East Coast to the West Coast was he was involved in some surveillance that involved some unions and perhaps some mobsters. And as a result of this surveillance, three people were murdered. His clients had used the information that he had recorded, information that they viewed as dangerous to themselves. So they went ahead and murdered these people. And so here's Harry involved in a murder, not directly, but surely indirectly facilitating. I mean, maybe these people didn't need to be murdered, but the conversation that he recorded in private was sent to somebody who was willing to murder. And so this is a burden that Harry carries around. And so he can't hack it on the East Coast and goes to the West Coast. But throughout, we see he's tormented by this. And when he begins to hear the conversation that Frederick Forrest says, he'd kill us if he got the chance. Once again, that story comes back and he thinks, maybe, you know, I need to do something here or maybe I should question the motives of the people who have hired me. But he doesn't have any ability to interpret what's going on because he has no real private life. And he really he hasn't learned from his previous example. And a lot of that has to do with his obsession with his own privacy that disconnects him from anybody else to have any relationships with men, whether it's friendship or a mentor mentee relationship or competitors even or client, you know, hiring out his skills, as well as with his romantic relationships. He just drops his girlfriend as soon as she knows anything about him. And then he's duped by a woman who kind of seduces him. She's the one who ends up stealing all of his hidden recordings. And so his demand on privacy undermines his ability to succeed at what he thinks he's trying to do, let alone save the people that he thinks are in jeopardy. Yep, all these movies we're talking about, Antonioni and now Coppola and De Palma are about, what do you think you're saying when you're saying, I want to be who I am, I want to be myself? 
mm-hmm. I am going to be the test case for individuality for the whole human race. Mm-hmm. They're saying that's a recipe for tragedy. You don't know that you're setting yourself up for tragedy. The Gene Hackman character realizes in some strange way that the more he wants to be impervious to gossip, the more he want, has to live a life that isn't open to being gossiped about. There's nothing to mm-hmm. gossip about him. Mm-hmm. The less there is in his life, the less there is to surveil. It is a very strange situation, but he empties himself of his privacy in the name of protecting his privacy. And why does he do that? Because he knows how powerful technology is at violating yes. humanity, and he just wants to get better and better at it. The difference between Harry 1.0, East Coast Harry, and Harry mm-hmm. 2.0, West Coast Harry, is that now he knows that information could be used for horrifying purposes, and he thinks, well, you know, maybe I could kind of prevent that. He never mm-hmm. second guesses the power he wields. He just thinks that maybe you, you got to be a bit careful about what might be done with that power. Mm-hmm. It never occurs to him that it's inherently dangerous, that people's secrets are often, or can be, guilty secrets yes and that it's not merely a matter of capturing experience in sound or recording it it's a matter of what effect it has on people the things that people know change their lives and change how they live harry is stuck between confessing to god and doing his job Mm -hmm. and the issue here is guilt he feels Mm -hmm. guilty for the deaths of these people who died because they were believed to be disloyal when in fact they hadn't been. The dirty secrets, the, the ugly truths they had been telling had all been told in privacy, but Harry violated that mm-hmm. privacy. And so they were believed to be disloyal, as though they themselves had violated secrecy or privacy, mm-hmm. and so they were murdered for it. And this shocked the hell out of him. He was not ready for his talent, his skill, his genius at revealing the truth to lead to murder. The truth mm-hmm. is supposed to set us free. Yep. But instead, it can encourage people to commit murders. Even telling the truth, or, or the truth as a recording can get at it, can lead people to mistaken ideas. Mm-hmm. What he learned on the East Coast through this instance was that he was able to be hired by people with evil motives. That deludes him, because when he records the couple in the park out in San Francisco, you know, he immediately thinks that their motives... Well, yes, they're involved in adultery. Yes, that is sinful. You know, yes, it's shameful what they're doing. They shouldn't be doing what they're doing. But they're the potential victims. He is still willing to hire himself out to people who might be wanting to use those recordings for bad purposes. That's the irony or the inversion of this movie is that turns out the people he's recording are the ones who are planning the crime. And that just doesn't dawn on him at all. He he doesn't find that out till the very end. He has a misunderstanding of the human heart, not only his own, but those who use him to spy on others. And perhaps, you know, those who are being spied on are not necessarily always victims. You could say that Gene Hackman plays one of us, a true Democrat. He believes that only the rich and powerful could ever be evil. They're oppressors. Mm -hmm. The rest of us are the oppressed. For himself, the solution is to make himself impervious by making himself fully secret. He will not be oppressed by the surveillance that he imposes on other people, even though he's aware that it's the rich and powerful who can afford to hire his services. He will serve the rich in finding out that, you know, maybe the wives are traducing them. This director of a corporation, this mysterious figure played by Robert Duvall, whom you Mm -hmm. see barely for a few minutes in the movie, and he's got this great Doberman pincher next to him, such a menacing, aristocratic, old-world figure... 
that guy's a bad guy. But, mm-hmm. you know, his wife cheated on him. All that Gene Hackman cares about is he shouldn't take it too badly. He should just <laughs> not be that proud. He should just admit that, well, you know, sometimes happens. Love will find a way. <laughs> That's his idea of America, democracy, justice. The rich and powerful might do bad things, but nobody else. Everybody mm-hmm. else is nice people. It turns out, no, it's the wife and her lover who are murderers. Mm-hmm. It's the weak people, it's the vulnerable people, it's the people who seem to be honest and in a certain sense innocent, that is to say guileless. They have no idea they're being spied on. They're the ones telling the truth spontaneously, not the ones who are suspicious and overbearing and intrusive. But no, turns out they're perfectly capable of being evil too. Mm -hmm. This shocks the hell out of him all over again. On the East Coast, he discovered evil. On the West Coast, the land of freedom, the American future, he discovered that evil is just part of the human heart. You don't Mm -hmm. have to be rich or powerful to be evil. People who aren't rich or powerful, people who are vulnerable, they could be evil too. Mm -hmm. You know, his confusion with regard to this is he does think he's going to have an attempt to try to save this couple. You know, after all, he'd kill us if he got a chance. So he's going to save this couple from the evil director. Uh, I guess this evil director is so angry at his wife's infidelity that he's going to possibly kill him for their affair. And he hears in the conversation, of course, all the tapes get recorded, but initially he's going to refrain from giving the tapes to the director. He's going to hold on to them because he's worried about this couple. And he hears in the conversation that the couple's going to meet in a few days at the Jack Tar Hotel. And of course, he thinks, well, now maybe I can go there and do something perhaps to intervene to protect them from being murdered. Of course, not knowing that that's going to be the place where they commit their murder of the director, of her husband. So he's going to set up this surveillance in it. And so he thinks that somehow he can still use his techniques to help solve the crime. You know, very similar to you know the David Hemmings character thinks, well, the camera somehow maybe get a photograph of the dead body. That somehow this will solve the crime. And yet the crime in blow ups already been committed. And here in the conversation, it's about to happen. And he's going to see it, or at least see it in part. And at that point, he still doesn't even know who's been murdered. You know, he doesn't find out till the very end that it was the very same people he thought he was trying to protect who killed. You know, so all of this attempt to protect his privacy on the one hand, keep him from being heard by others. And on the other hand, to kind of show his superior talent and his great technological mastery of surveillance, each thing in a way kind of becoming himself shows how weak and ineffectual he is and how little he understands of what he's looking at. He has no knowledge of the world and he has no knowledge of the self, of his own self, and he ends up just being a crushed individual by the end of the movie. And this is saying something about his demand for privacy. That's great individual liberalism here, that we should have some protections between ourselves and the outside world. It's connected to shame, to protect or keep private what's our own that we don't want others to see, but also a worry that others might be trying to intrude upon us and trying to set barriers between ourselves. And yet, on the other hand, that we have a right to pursue whatever we want to in order to make a living, to acquire property, to advance technology, and and even perhaps make a name for yourself. Maybe not in business for Harry, but nonetheless, earn a reputation as somebody to be respected. And yet, what does he end up with? You know, nothing. This is quite an indictment of this obsessive individualism, at least if you focus on the question of privacy, as this movie does, uh, can lead to a dead end. Yep. 
Now, Gene Hackman, Harry Cole, he looks like a nobody, is a prematurely aged, sort of kind of ugly guy. But at the same time, he is Mr. America. He is a guy who's taking on his own shoulders the burden of being a modern America, which is a world where you have to be obsessively protective of your privacy while obsessively violating that of others. Mm -hmm. Why? Because of technology. Technology has changed the American life. Now, we may laugh at silly Indians who don't want their picture taken because it steals their soul or something like that. But what happens when it turns into a paparazzi industry? What happens Mm -hmm. when the government may be spying on you through the social media tech corporations that you think are giving you access to other people who might like you, be your friends or love what you do? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What if they are stealing your soul? That's the thing that he's dealing with and that's what makes him a tragic hero. Behind his everyman persona, behind his drab exterior, the conflict is the conflict we're all dealing with in the digital era. And so that's incredibly important. Now, from the point of view of the movie director, from the point of view of the artist or the poet, that is, the question is, could you reduce human life to technology? And both Antonioni and Coppola say no. Because when you capture recordings, when you have sounds or sights, you don't know what they mean. Mm -hmm. You can be scientific, technological, be a kind of detective who says, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. But Mm -hmm. that's not enough to understand human nature and the uses Mm -hmm. to which we put technology or the effects of technology on us. The technologists, the users of instruments in both movies, think that they themselves are immune to reality, that they can transform experience into evidence, testimony, and Mm -hmm. that makes them free themselves. As if experience could never come back to bite you. Things you take pictures of can never come back to hurt you. Things you record in in sound can never come back to hurt you. Well, it turns out they can. Mm -hmm. You're not immune to these things any more than by taking pictures or recordings of sounds of things do you become sort of immortal. You're still actually mortal and vulnerable. And these stories, by organizing a plot confront their tragic heroes with the consequences of their belief in technology and the future and they break them and in that way they liberate poetry they say actually the facts won't speak for themselves they won't interpret themselves you have to understand the human heart technology will not suffice you to get true psychology to get a real understanding of the human heart and soul you're going to need poets You're going to be directors. They're the people who are actually in charge, if anybody is, when it comes to understanding, however powerless they are. And uh, you can see at a certain level of abstraction that blow up is all about space because that's what pictures can capture. What Coppola understood is that his movie, The Conversation, has to be about time. Because Mm -hmm. sound is all about time. Now, you can take an entire panorama in view instantly as you see it or in a picture, but you cannot think of a melody without taking the time to go through all the notes in their sequence, some Mm -hmm. longer, some shorter, all that. It's time. And this is why in this movie, the murder hasn't happened yet. Yes. Because with speeches, you don't know exactly where they are situated in time. Are they speeches about what has happened in the past? what's happening now, or what will happen in the future. Mm -hmm. Spying on conversations creates this problem. Are we talking about past, present, or future here? It -hmm. will affect being human because it takes the temporal character of humanity and tries to reduce it to evidence, to a recording. But the recording of what? 
It's a recording of the human heart, of the human capacity to make plans, of the human capacity to remember things, Mm -hmm. and of the human capacity to notice things. He doesn't understand that. He doesn't realize how fraught time is for us as human beings because we're caught in the present sensing things, but remembering the past and expecting the future as well. Mm-hmm. And that's why in this movie the murder is about to happen and he is yes. powerless to stop it. It's not a thing of the past captured in space like in Blow Up. It's captured in time and therefore you don't know. In that final act, we see all of a sudden how anxious Gene Hackman gets. All of a sudden, his vulnerability, this issue of human mortality and of evil. Mm -hmm. Somebody's going to be murdering somebody. Mm -hmm. All of this stuff scares him out of any composure and reveals to him his weakness and the futility of his idea of controlling the world by violating privacy. It turns out that he's not the master of the universe that he wanted to be, that he thought he was in his proudest moments when he'd be boasting about how he solved all these problems from a technical point of view. Yeah. Well, you know, the photograph, so it captures a moment in time, but it's a picture in space that can be blown up and you can see the body. So the murder has already happened, but your ability to kind of interpret the image through blowing up That can be done over and over and over again. Uh, Here, as you point out, the murder at the very end. So we're definitely about time, the temporal nature of this. So what can you do to a recording? You know, what, make it louder? So what he instead does is just kind of obsessively listen over and over and over and over again to this conversation. By repeating that, he thinks he's figured out the nature of this conversation. They want to protect themselves, their affair, from this man. Uh, But completely unaware, as you point out, that the conversation turns out to be about the act they're going to commit in the future. And then, you know, when he realizes that here we have two instances of his recording that led to a crime that he was instrumental in. This breaks him, of course. And now he realizes, you know, where is he going to go? He's gone from the East Coast to the West Coast. Yet time's going to continue because that temporality points towards his mortality. And that points to you know, he realizes his ultimate vulnerability, in particular vulnerability to the kinds of people he thought he could be immune from his clients, the people with the power and money who can kind of control things and who use him to control things. And so that anxiety of not knowing when death is going to happen, but that life continues. But he's bereft of friends, of any kind of love life, of any family. His attempt to make himself singular just throws him back now at kind of the lowest point. He rips his apartment completely up. He holds his saxophone. I mean, is that where the bug is? He never finds the bug. Um, Yeah, he realized he himself has been under surveillance and he never thought he was that vulnerable. And this is the last thing that breaks him and in a sense maybe returns him to humanity. He knows Mm -hmm. that now he's like everybody else. His specialness Mm -hmm. isn't all that special. And of course, as you pointed out, he plays the saxophone against the recording. Jazz, the most spontaneous art form, the American (laughs) form of music, itself is recorded. You can record it. You can listen to Louis Armstrong. He was great. It can seem fresh to you because music always takes time to play out. But all that spontaneity is now recorded. Yes. Experience becomes evidence. And that's the only way in which he can think of a conversation. Jazz is conversational. You listen to what the other guy is playing and you play something in response. But he can only play in response to machines that have already recorded an experience. There's no other musician. They're just like there's no crowd applauding. (laughs) This is the level at which he can connect to humanity. 
he can record things and then react to them. He can never be part of any experience. At the end, he realizes this issue about the conversation. Who's listening in? Well, people have been listening in on him and they're willing to let him know that he too now is vulnerable. He has Mm -hmm. been returned to humanity. He's no longer apart from it. And he goes back to playing his saxophone. Maybe he'll never get more human than this and play with human beings, have a conversation with human beings. But he at least now knows that he is not invulnerable, that he is not the God listening in on everybody else's involuntary confessions. Yeah, I mean, just the whole idea of live music being recorded, especially jazz music with its improvisation, its conversational style. And you can play that, you know, that one great lead that, you know, Louis Armstrong played over and over and over again. But in that recording, you're missing out the experience uh, that you had to be there. And part of life is having to be there. But this recording somehow seems to think you don't need to be there. But then there's no experience and there's no human life. Um, and that's the kind of a attempt to put human life onto a big fat recording. You no longer you know, need to have human beings. But it turns out this is impossible because you can't in a way cease to be human. But maybe the only way you show yourself to be human that this movie seems to be showing is, well, you have these evil people who are willing to murder a man, uh, I suppose, to take over the corporation or just to live freely in love. They're willing to murder. It's just so that they can have their own life. I mean, they they make it look as if it's a auto crash. So they've gotten away with the murder. Or you have just this incredibly lonely guy, Harry Call. Now what is he going to do? I mean, I suppose he still has his reputation, but after this, is he going to continue doing it? I don't think so. It's a pretty bleak view. It's, of course, typical 70s cinema, at least, you know, kind of bleak view of what kind of options are available for living or living well in kind of a liberal democratic society. Yeah, you see all the characters who have some power in this movie seem to be sort of inhuman. It's the characters who aren't powerful, who seem like maybe you could get through this without losing your mind. Mm-hmm. But they're not taken seriously. They're secondary. They're merely props in this case. But of course, they would have to be taken seriously to understand how you could still live as a human being when you know you're being surveilled. And you realize that that's sort of an insane thing to do, but that's the world we live in. As we were joking before, uh, liberalism went in a hurry from this Miranda rights warning, you have the right to keep silent, anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law, to now being a description of life. (laughs) Everything you say is being recorded. That's right. So human psychology must in certain ways change in light of the shocking, scary things you hear from Antonioni and from Coppola and what we all know about surveillance through pictures and sounds. But you would still want at the end of the drama for people to stay human and to figure out some way to deal with their human individuality that doesn't lead to insanity or tragedy. How to do so is a very tricky problem. It seems like Coppola and Antonio are saying people don't even notice what's going on around us, how our whole world is being changed by a technological attack on individuality that is itself the consequence of an interest in individuality. Mm-hmm. You got to really be interested in secrets to violate them. You got to be yep. really obsessed with the shameful to be shameless. Think of digital technology. So on the one hand, everybody can put themselves out there exactly as they want to be seen and express their individuality. But somehow this seems to show greater and greater degree of conformity. But this is somehow giving us what we want. 
And yet then the more and more we get what we want, the less we have any kind of privacy, right? It's, it, I mean, nowadays, it's not even just, you know, what you write on Twitter or on your Facebook. It's you're being recorded through your phone, all kinds of data, which could be interpreted in all kinds of way. Every, you know, every time I take a walk with my phone, I'm being followed somewhere or somehow and what I'm doing and where I'm going. Yeah, this is pretty disturbing. So what does it mean to live as a human being in that type of a circumstance? It's a question I don't have any answers to. But it is kind of amazing that you think of uh, 1974. Here, this kind of technology was for the few, although the convention tells us it's going to be sold more and more broadly, right? You can now spy on your wife and eventually we'll get the cell phone and the you know, I can remember as a kid, as somebody gave me as a gift in the 70s, a tiny little camera, like a James Bond type camera. And I thought it was just the coolest, hippest thing I'd ever seen, you know. And of course, now this is what everybody has in their pocket, let alone recording devices and everything else. And we're thrown back also in a situation then that who can you trust, right? Everybody's out there showing themselves and yet they kind of conform to the same model. And the more and more we do that, the more and more we make ourselves vulnerable to being constantly under watch and potentially to be attacked or stand a lot to lose, become more and more vulnerable, for sure. Yep. A lot of this is what's at stake in these movies, teaching people that we shouldn't be oblivious, we should face up to how vulnerable we actually are now. There's no wishing away the problem that technology has revealed about our liberalism that on the one hand we want to put ourselves on display to be loved and liked for who we are and as we are. On the other hand, we want to hide away. We want to be secrets. Mm -hmm. We don't want to let anybody in except maybe some people we want to let in. And we're stuck in between these two things, just like with blow up where everybody wants to be seen and to be seen to be beautiful and to be loved for it. And on the other hand, the conversation where everybody wants to violate the ugly secrets, the ugly truths about other mm -hmm. people have to be found out, while the ugly truths about oneself have to be protected. So we go with beauty and ugliness, with sights and sounds, with trying to be seen and attract attention, versus trying to become invisible, anonymous, obscure, hiding away. These are twin sides of privacy or individuality, and we're somehow being torn apart. In mm -hmm. between the two. Both of these tragic heroes show something about our world, an attempt to become the best by thinking that if you're in control of the technology, that means you're free from its problems. It could never mm -hmm. be turned against you. But of course, both our man who records surveillance and our man who takes pictures from these movies are now mere machines. You can record mm -hmm. on your iPhone both sound and sight. You can record as we do our own conversations online. That's true. Right. Technology now works as, as a simple <laughs> machine, and all the people who are involved in making it, in a sense, have been reduced to the function of a robot. And mm -hmm. This is why the attempt of directors to save art from turning into evidence is an attempt to save humanity. Yeah. And, of course, we also retain some hope that moving on from Coppola to De Palma and <laughs> getting to video and the modern era of sight and sound together, so to speak, we will be able to see something we hadn't seen up till now. Maybe it will give us at least the shape of certain answers. Mm -hmm. For now, at least this much should be clear. These movies are not just good stories or timely warnings they're an investigation into the problems of liberalism as such what does it mean to say everybody has his private life everybody has privacy well what if they violate it what if somebody does it or we do it to ourselves by exposing ourselves mm -hmm. what if we make it into a business to find out people's secrets 
What if we make it into a business to tempt people to give away their own secrets? Mm -hmm. This is how we should begin to think about what's happening in our digital era. Thanks for joining me again, John. This has been be here. a riveting conversation yet again. We are ourselves exploring all these secretive, worrisome things and yeah. hopefully doing it in a humane way rather than in the exploitative ways that the directors warn us about. And let's get on to De Palma as soon as we can. Sounds great. Looking forward to it. All the best meanwhile, John. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.